Hi, this is Michael Ironside, and you're listening Without Your Head. Welcome to the Station of Decapitation Without Your Head. I'm Nasty Neal. I'm Treacherous Trista. And we're joined by the returning Jeremy Katzen. Yes, you can introduce yourself, Jeremy. Hello, I'm Jeremy Caston, and I'm thrilled to be back on the show. Yeah, it's very, I think it's, uh, it was either 2006 or 2007 you were on, so it's been, uh, yeah, a long time, 14 or 13 years. About a lifetime, but you know the the movie I am now uh, uh, birthing into the world has taken a lifetime, so it's not shocking that it it's been so long. The Dead Ones, the Dead. So, how long have you been working on the Dead Ones? We shot the Dead Ones in two thousand and nine, oh, wow. uh, and uh, probably there'll be no secret or surprise by the time this airs that it's a school shooter ghost story of sorts. So, when we shot it, it was not. I mean, obviously it was already, you know, an issue and there were, um, you know, horrible incidents that had already occurred and that the film was at least in part based on. But uh, it took 11 years because by the time we wrapped principal photography with 70% of the movie done, we we had understandably a a difficult time finding investors to, to... help us get the rest of the movie finished because, you know, we, we'd have somebody interested and Sandy Hook would happen or something else horrible and uh, people would get cold feet. And I, I, I get it, but it, it, 
uh, it was never my intention to self-finance post for 11 years, but that's exactly what I did. Wow. Uh, what's that experience like to, you know, have your movie finished uh, or almost finished for the, for that long and then to finally get it out there? Horrible. <laughs> I mean, horrible until it's done. And now it's, um, I mean, uh, I have a lot of very complicated answers to that question. It feels good. It's uh, obviously the pandemic is, as, uh, as you said uh, before you, you introed, uh, you know, there are no film festivals to speak of and a lot of the kind of uh, excitement of uh, meeting fans and seeing your film with the cast and uh, an audience and, and getting to um, speak in front of in front of Q&A's and, and get out in front of the movie and talk about what your intentions were. That's that's gone. So it's a complicated time to be releasing a movie. But thus far, I've been very uh, pleased with the reaction. Like you said, it's a good feeling now that it's out. But it's also mixed because you can't have it out you the way you wanted. But I assume those eleven years are very. Uh, uh, when not I said horrible, you not having the movie come out. Yeah, I'm. I'm grateful to have. I think Art Exploitation is the right distributor. I think they've done a great job. Um, Raven Banner did that deal, and uh, you know, look, a lot of people make movies that never ever see the light of day, and I'm very aware of that. And I'm. I'm grateful that the movie is finding a release and finding an audience. Um, I, you know, you make a movie that, that is, uh, controversial and with intention and, um, you know, I really, it's really important to me to speak to you guys and, and fans and, and, um, the audience in, in the world, uh, and talk about, um, the film and make it clear that, that my intention is not ever, to exploit the subject matter, but to speak to it because um, I think appropriately people could be find revulsion at the notion of making a film like this. And I think it's really important to address that out in front of the movie. And so that's, that's really the part that's hardest for me is the difficulty in that. Mm-hmm. Um, it might've been before I started recording, but you, you mentioned that you left LA, you're living in Maine now. Did the experience these 11 years of trying to get the movie made, did that have any input on, uh, on leaving LA? I don't know if you, if you were still involved in movie making. I love Los Angeles. I mean, I love Los Angeles with all my heart. I felt more at home in Los Angeles than anywhere else. I fell in um, not so much with the, the horror community, but with the magic community actually, and, and was uh, welcomed after Wizard of Gore, strangely, by uh, the world of variety arts performers. And I was directing uh, spook shows and uh, variety shows with magicians and sword swallowers and contortionists and um, felt like I had found my real group of um, lunatic fringe, I guess, uh-huh. like the, the Ed Wood thing of like, these are my people. Um, and I really missed that. But uh the, the movie business, which I worked both sides of, I was, you know, always made independent genre films, but I also uh, worked in marketing for studio movies. Uh, it's changed. And as an editor, I was making more of my living supporting my family in uh, TV, reality TV, which I uh, have a distaste for, honestly. It wasn't my thing. And um, 
Yeah, I think that probably fighting to see the movie through for so long, so hard, made me want to have a new chapter and a new experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, real quick too about the the magic community did you uh did you get to go to the magic castle in in la because when i was out there i didn't know how how hard it was to get there but i was invited and so i got to go and then afterwards there there were a lot of people like oh wow like i guess it's really hard to to get invited to the magic castle it's um you know it's a private club uh for members only i don't know you know how difficult or not the first one of the first times I went that really changed my life is I went with Crispin Glover to go see magicians for, you know, to, to prep for the wizard of gore. Uh, and we worked with a magician who trained Crispin a little bit. Um, and because of that, I met the daughter of the, the uh, husband and wife and, and his brother uh, who, who started the castle back in 63. And before that, they uh, did shows for each other for Orson Welles and Cary Grant and all these like fabulous Hollywood people would meet in this theater behind their home that was built as a demonstration stage for magic in the 20s uh, called Brookledge. And it's a uh, fame. It's called the most famous address in magic because it was uh, I know this is way off topic for horror movies, but just to give you a little bit of background, it was Floyd Thayer who built all the most uh, impressive illusions in the 20s. He lived there, and so he built the stage to demo magic on. Um, and after 63, the theater was shuttered when the castle became the replacement for magicians to gather, and it became the actual club. Uh, and in uh 2007, Erica Larson, whose father started the castle with her mom, uh, asked me, she said she wanted to reopen the theater. And she asked me if I wanted to direct the shows and be part of bringing this theater back to life, which we did and was um, where I was directing and, and doing stage and met so many incredible people. You know, I would look out in the audience and it would be Paul Rubens and Ryan Gosling and, uh, you know, uh, Marty Croft from HR Puff and stuff like yeah, it was yeah. just uh, 50 seats, but every person in every seat was like uh, people who had changed my life. So uh, it was, it was a, an incredible experience. And in part we're here in Maine uh, to do something different, but similar and do a, a little rascals style barn theater with variety arts for families. So oh. it's a long ways off, but that's the dream. Yeah. And by the way, if people haven't seen that your Wizard of Gore, uh, Crispin Glover is really amazing as as Montag. I agree; yeah. he is really good in it. Of of all the things I could say, good or bad about that movie, I think Crispin is definitely one of the things I'm. I I still thrill at at the fact that you know I got to work with him. He played Montag and and is you know uh, uh, a true. Um, uh, a movie star. I mean, he, he exudes charisma and it's, uh, he believes everything he does. And that's really extraordinary. I'm trying to remember the line. Cause it's one of my favorite line. It's my favorite line in the movie and it's his delivery. It's uh, he says the things it's like the things they tell you. And then he goes, lies. And the way he says it was, <laughs> uh, is my favorite. Uh, <laughs> the delivery is amazing. That's what I'm trying to say. It is. It is. It's something special. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I, we're going to talk about the dead ones, but real, uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis, did you have much interaction with him? 
I he went to, you know, my first, first movie was uh, called The Attic Expeditions. And it's actually the 20-year anniversary. It's being re-released uh, through Severin, which I'm thrilled about um, and getting a loving re-release. And, I mean, I'm tickled. I never expected to see that movie re-emerge as some kind of piece of, you know, classic horror canon. <laughs> it's really cool. So when that movie also took me a really long time. We, we, we went into production with not enough money, ran aground, and uh, for four years raised money and shot as we could. And in that time, uh, I went to Fangoria Convention in New York City. Uh, and it was the first time that I was showing up, you know, not as a fan, but as a filmmaker. And we showed some scenes from the movie in process and a temp trailer. And Herschel was there. And I met him and uh, I got to talk to him. I got to hang out a little bit with him and he was so kind and warm. And I told him it was my dream to remake his movies and give them a very polished new take treatment. And he said, I think that sounds great. You know, he had a booming voice, very big man. And it was like that. I think that sounds great. And I would love to see what you make of that. And uh, years later when we, he didn't own the remake rights, so we worked hard to acquire those rights. It took a long time. And, uh, and when he, the movie was done, I, I showed it to him, and he was so kind and uh, so warm and uh, encouraging. And, and at the time, uh, not everybody's reaction to the movie went that way. And so it meant a lot that, that he was happy because, it, you know, I was, I was doing uh, a cover of his creation, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of Herschel Gordon-Lewis. Uh, his movies and, like you said, him as a person. He's one of my favorite interviews on the show. He's, and also, the I say, honestly, the best um, commentary tracks are Herschel Gordon-Lewis because of the voice. You, yeah. you can, even if you're not interested, because uh, I'll be honest, I like his horror movies. I'm not interested in, like, some of his, the, the like, the biker chick movies. That's not really my sure. cup. But if you just listen to it for the commentary track. Uh, they're amazing. And also by the end of any of his commentary track, you'll think you just watch like Gone with the Wind of, of horror films or, or the Taxi Driver of horror films because he'll really put it over as the best movie. And I love Herschel Gordon-Lewis. They're not necessarily the greatest, but but he'll really sell you on them. I highly recommend He has that. a great take on filmmaking. And, you know, I think that in the kind of uh, Roger Corman, uh, William Castle – Lewis, th- those guys and, and creating Ballyhoo and having a sense for how to get audiences excited about movies that were made for very little money, but offered something different than studio fare. You know, those are my heroes. So I, I agree. He, yeah. he, he deserves to convince us that he made Gone with the Wind. I agree. In a sense he did. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm honestly, uh, um, I mean, it's the original slasher, really, uh, the Blood Feast. You know. He changed the face of what people thought of scary movies as being. Nobody had done what he did. Mm-hmm. No matter how people feel about those films, they're not wonderful films. They're not crafted films. But there's something about them that I think is really interesting. And one of the things I think is really cool about the Lewis movies is they're not shot, like, on a soundstage. They're not on a set they're in some depressing house in Florida 
in the 60s. And so they're gaudy, but they're real. And it makes it feel very immediate in a way that I think a lot of other films don't have from that period. Yeah, I agree. And I don't have it here, but I have a hand-painted top hat that, that my friend Annabelle painted with all my favorite monsters. And it has uh, it has Fouad Ramsey's from the original uh, Blood Feast. Wow. And he's one of the characters that most people don't even know who that is. They're like, who, who is that guy? But but it's one of my favorite characters. So, it's an uh, early Halloween costume for me. I, yeah, I, I think you could pull that off. Yeah. Uh, Tristan, did you have a question? Sorry to take all the questions. Not at all. Um, when I was watching your film, I, I, for some reason, I was struck by, like, I wonder if this guy likes immersive theater. Because I, I really like immersive theater. And something about the film had that quality. All, Although, like, really, uh, school shooting immersive theater experience would be a hard sell. Something about the way the film was shot just reminded me of that. And then um, hearing about your background in in magic, like, I think there's some crossover in that community, so that makes sense to me. So I am wondering if you have any experience or interest in immersive theater. Yes. Well, and I think... All film is still, even if you're sitting home in front of a computer by yourself, it's still uh, uh, putting on a play, right? You're still doing a show for someone. And um, the, the immersive theater and theater in general uh, has to be very conscious of their audience. And I think uh, genre films, one of the things that works really well about genre films, even low-budget movies, first films, when they work, it's that, that consciousness that, that good theater tends to have uh, and the actors in it um, and sharing that theatrical experience. You know, I, I think I approach the, the filmmaking process. I did a lot of theater growing up, so I think it's, it's hard to extricate myself, my love for film from my love for theater. Oh, right when the, when the Dead One started, um, and it's a scene with the bullying, uh, it was interesting to me because I think that same scene in movies not that long ago would have been played for laughs. It would have been comedy, you know, putting a, yeah. a underwear over someone's head and dunking them in the toilet. And it's, you know, it, I think people are more aware now of what bullying is and, you know, how the effects it has on people. But it's interesting to me because I do think in a lot of movies that would have been played for comedy. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the, the sort of screwball teenage comedies of the 70s and 80s had lots of that revenge of the geeks. And I mean, that's, that is, it's a trope, but there's a reason it's a trope. And I think, you know, for writers and filmmakers who are often outsiders um, and genre fans, it's a trope that maybe hits too close to home for me. It does. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I grew up playing D and D and watching weird horror, uh, you know, Herschel Gordon Lewis movies and I was in chess clubs. So, you know, not necessarily the, the, the most popular person in the world, but yeah, so I can understand. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think for a lot of us, there's, uh, I'm grateful that I had parents that were supportive and let me, you know, told the people at the local video store, Oh, he can rent whatever he wants. When I was <laughs> I 11. Experience, and, actually. Yeah. And, uh, I think that's common, but I think some parents aren't like that at all. And I think those are the kids who end up not, feeling like they have an outlet and a way to express themselves. And that can become, you know, that can get ugly and it can become pent up. And, mm-hmm. and what, that's you know, what you're trying to show in the movie that, uh, 
you because it's a despicable act, obviously, and no one's going to defend it. But the that there is something behind it. There is a reason why people do things. Yeah, I mean, I I think I would hate to pretend that I know the reasons, but I do think that um, there's definitely a uh, disenfranchisement in certain kids that makes them feel um, removed. And, and, you know, I don't know that it's the school's fault. I don't know that it's the parents' fault. I, I, I just know it's something that we need to look at and think about. It feels very removed at the moment because of COVID, right? And, and the idea of kids being in school feels kind of like something of the past. But it doesn't change the positions of, of a world that allowed that to happen and continue to have drills for students but not look at the the root causes of, of those actions or of guns. So um, the, the writer, uh, Zach Chasler, uh, you worked with him a, a lot. So like, how did you guys uh, get together? Initially mm-hmm. uh, I had had a writing partner that I worked with for years. That was a college friend. And uh, he wrote my first movie, the attic expeditions. And we had like five projects that we've been working on for years and years uh, and and the relationship soured, and he kind of took all the scripts and stepped away. And I was like, okay, now I have to find somebody who who can write stuff that speaks to me. And I reached out to friends, and I had a friend that I saw at lots of parties who was from New York and said, you should talk to this guy, Zach. He wants to write horror movies. And uh, pretty much as soon as we started talking, we hit it off like gangbusters. He um, secretly saved my ass on All Souls Day, which really – had not much of a script and it was like two weeks before production and the producer wouldn't let, wouldn't hire Zach. So I think I paid Zach and had to say it was me and he just gave me notes. And then similarly, Zach didn't do a great job of kowtowing to these producers and saying, Oh, I'm dying to work with you and you guys are geniuses. And so when I, my next movie was the thirst and the script was, there wasn't really much of a decent, the script wasn't what I wanted it to be. And they were like, well, you fix it. You fixed all souls day. And I was like, please hire Zach. And so Zach wrote the thirst and, uh, and then they, they, he didn't get credit on that, but I've since tried to fix that in the world of the internet. And, and at the same time we were trying to uh, acquire the remake rights to all those Lewis titles, got wizard of gore. He wrote wizard of gore. And uh, he also wrote um, my segment in theater bazaar the uh, anthology film uh, with uh, with Udo Kier. Oh yeah, I've never, I've not seen that movie. I know for a long time that was one that uh, I was one to see because like there was all kinds of issues about it being released and like so many uh, people are involved. But uh, it is, it is out. Like you can see it. It is, and it's being re-released this fall also with Severin and uh, a loving oh, Severin puts package, a, lot of cool stuff. a bunch yeah. of cool stuff and new commentaries and Udo is really amazing in the movie. And we pulled off for, you know, very little money, something pretty extraordinary with him. I'm really proud of that. Udo has the coolest eyes I've ever seen. I was around him for a little while and uh, they're like, uh, they're kind of like intimidating, but also like uh, very beautiful eyes. I don't know. I guess I have a main crush on Udo, but he's a very, always a really cool guy. And uh, there's just something about him. He, he, he is a, he's he's uh, a pleasure. I mean, like all like Crispin, like Jeffrey Combs, like a lot of actors who, who um, 
fly between very low budget films where they are working with um, first time or, or, or potentially first or second time filmmakers and then do bigger films and are working with Peter Jackson or, you know, whoever great filmmakers with Gravitas, they, they, Udo comes with a lot of ideas and a lot of creative energy and, and wants to participate. And once he's in, he's definitely not just, you know, taking a paycheck and, and, and showing up. He, I went out to dinner with him a lot. I spent a lot of time with him and we merged creatively to create the character that he plays. Yeah. And he can drink Sweetheart. a lot of vodka and I'm not, you know, telling tales. I'm sure. No, he's a lot of, Fun. I mean, he's a he is a a, a, a dynamo. He really is. He performed my wedding. He he. Oh, really? We were lucky enough to uh, have him say yes to, to performing the wedding. So my my children will always know that uh, Andy Warhol's <laughs> Frankenstein is also and Dracula is also the person that married mommy and daddy. That's awesome. That's pretty wild. Yeah. Uh, Tristan, do you have another question? Sorry. Um, so you are an editor, but you did not edit this film. Is it difficult for you to hand that over? It was. Um, I, my, a very dear friend uh, who, who edited the film and I think did an incredible job, Max Gilman, uh, had been my assistant editor at our day job uh, initially for many years. And then on The Wizard of Gore, um, like with all my movies, at some point you, the People who fund them are like, well, we're not going to spend any more money. This is, is we're going to stop here. Uh, and so in post-production on The Wizard of Gore, there were a lot of effects that I wanted to do. And at the time, um, there was not a lot of what you did on your computer didn't necessarily become what is released. There was still this old notion that you go to a finishing place. And so we did a lot of color correction and a lot of, building mats to create interesting transitions. And Max really um, worked with me to suss out and, and, and work through the tech side. And so after that, I was like, I think that you should take on the dead ones because I'm going to want to do a ton of that. Um, and we did. Uh, and, it, you know, I, I'm lucky because it did take 11 years in post. And, you know, every six months I'd call him and say, hey, I got five more green screen shots. We need to cut them in. And I have an idea for this scene. And when you don't have money, you find ways to continue to poke away at it. And we did. And, and um, I had a very specific vision for what I wanted the movie to be. And I think it was hard for him because he wanted to go down the line as an editor and start with a really fat cut. That was two hours and 40 minutes and whittle it. And I, I was, I, I needed to see the movie with sound effects and music and color corrected from the beginning so I could shape it. And um, that's, that's exhausting for an editor and he stuck with it. And I'm very grateful. Do you normally edit your own things? I don't know if that's hard to do to edit your own material. You're not supposed to, I wouldn't advise many editors to do it, but I was doing so much editing of independent feature films that at some point it made more sense to me to, to take the reins because I could get there faster. I didn't, it was harder to sit behind somebody, even if they were a great editor <clears throat> and be like, okay, but that's great. Now let's, rather than cutting it down by 10% and then in a week doing another 10%, let's just cut it down by 50% right now and save the next five weeks. I can see it. 
and and um, it's not really always the process, um, but I think the um, availability of nonlinear and the way that it's really become the standard, more and more editors are not of that sort of older generation that cut on film and wanted to take out a little bit at a time until you found your movie. Mm-hmm. From my experience doing the show, usually um, directors who are editors by trade have an easier time editing their own material. Cause I think they, yeah. you know, they have the, they look at more like this is what I have to do for the movie as opposed to I'm looking at it as stuff I shot and I don't want to cut out my own, uh, my own art. You have to be mercenary. Editing is about taking out anything you even question a little bit. It's always hard to say goodbye to moments and scenes and monologues and bits that you love, but most often those are the parts that have to go first. So did you film it at an actual school, like an abandoned school? That's what it looked like. I shot in Baltimore where I'm from uh, and uh, wanted to do that sort of as a reaction to the way um, my frustration on the wizard of gore. And, and, you know, there was a time towards the end of post on that, where the, the financiers wanted to cut out all the gore and felt like this is a movie about people and it's about a reporter. And I was like, no, my fans are, people want to see, no. And so, and there was a lot of butting heads surrounding Crispin's ideas and the financiers um, hand wringing about that. So I wanted to go make a very small movie uh, uh, away from L.A., not because I didn't have great experiences shooting in L.A., because the crews uh, are incredible there. They make movies all the time. Everybody who, you know, you're going to get somebody to do you a favor and key grip on your movie for a week in Los Angeles, you couldn't ask for a better key grip, no matter what. But I did not want to hire a cast for high schoolers who um, were jaded or who were... Um, you know, doing Disney Channel next week and had just booked a yogurt commercial and wanted people who were actors but were um, coming to it from uh, a different place. And I also didn't want to shoot <clears throat> in a high school we've seen a million times. There's just a limited number of high school locations on the West Coast in Southern California that you haven't seen before. And I wanted that brick East Coast school vibe uh, and so, yeah, we, we shot in Baltimore. We, we, the casting director is uh, Pat Moran, who was John Waters' partner uh, in all his early films and went on to be this amazing Emmy Award-winning casting director who did um, The Wire. And so she's great at finding people who are real people and, and also actors, right? So that was, uh, that was all appealing about going back to Baltimore and, and finding a way to, you know, go back to my hometown and, and make a film. Uh, so over those 11 years, and he's mentioned green screen, did you have to bring back any of those actors? And I assume that could be hard with someone who's, you know, playing a high school, you know, over those 11 years, and it might not look like a high schooler. So yeah, no, no we left Baltimore with 70% of the movie shot and everything covered for the principal cast. All the stuff with the horsemen sneaking around the school outside, we shot, I have a friend, you know, who was finishing, he had been in one of my movies, he played a kid, and he was now like an aspiring filmmaker, and he got us onto his school property, and we shoot at night with fake guns, and the assistant editor, and the editor, and the producer, and I were 
while wearing the gas masks. So we were lucky in that way that, that we could cover it like that. Um, there's shots of the little girl of, uh, of um, Grace that are my daughter. When, when I shot the movie, I hadn't met my wife. And since my daughter's grown up, but she plays <laughs> Grace in certain shots. There was another little girl who does the makeup stuff. In, uh, we had like three days of pickup shoots for the hellscape backdrop and some of the paper. We brought one of the paper mache monsters back out to California with us. Um, so there was stuff we were able to shoot around. Um, the actress who plays mouse for all the over the shoulder shots of mouse reaching in to save the girl and some of the duck shots. She met her now husband, who was the second unit cinematographer back in Los Angeles on the pickup shoots <laughs> of the dead one. So yeah, we didn't, we didn't, we had to bring people back for ADR for just some dialogue pickups, but otherwise we were very lucky because of those gas masks. Yeah, I noticed some of the, uh, some of the names were like old mythos and gods. I assume that was uh, intentional. Yeah, no, Zach really loaded the movie with, with, I think a lot of layers of, um, of story to unwrap. And yeah, there are, there's, there's, a lot of mentions of, of uh, Egyptian uh, death stories and, and uh, layers of hell. And it's all kind of, you know, Greek and Roman and Egyptian and all wrapped up in there. Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, it's also a ghost story. And I think it's kind of a, a really a traditional ghost story in that um, where it's like a, where something bad happens and like kind of the memories of, you know, violence or, or horrific acts acts are still, you know, with in, in the, the walls and in the atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so too. I, I, I think that it's one of the points that people miss is that, that, or, or, I mean, we'll see what happens. The movie comes out this week officially, but um, I think it's easy to miss that. It's not really like a first person shooter horror movie where you're just watching unabated violence for just to do it, but then it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a ghost story revisiting the, the terrible acts of the past. How about the looks of the masks themselves? Was, was that something uh, you, you were hands-on with? I have uh, uh, the privilege and also um, deep sadness to tell you that Elvis Jones who was uh, one of the partners of uh, Autonomous Effects, Jason Collins and Elvis Jones, did all my movies after uh, the Attic Expeditions. I started working with them on All Souls Day, then they started their own shop on The Thirst, and they did Wizard of Gore. Um, And uh, Elvis designed those masks, came to Baltimore, did all the makeup effects, had a great team, but he has died very young uh, while we were struggling to finish the movie. So uh, the film is dedicated to him and, and I think is an amazing homage to his genius and his artistry. Well, that's a shame though. I'm sorry he passed away. He was a good friend and really a brilliant makeup effects and, and special effects person and just had a solution for everything was, was so creative and, and, and uh, a great guy to have on set. Just, there's a piece on the uh, Blu-ray and DVD uh, about, uh, you know, we didn't get an interview with him, but he's on the set. And, uh, and his, there's an intern who was my friend's sister-in-law in New York who always made, you know, 
amazing Halloween costumes and makeups and wanted to work on a movie. And so we interviewed her on the set. So she kind of talks about working with Elvis and the experience of showing up on her first movie and getting to fling blood and learn as much as she did from Elvis. Oh, well, that's very cool. Look forward to that. Yeah. Uh, Tristan, do you have another question? So you do so much. I mean, you're an editor, director, producer, actor, writer. Like you, you do every job there is um, to do on filmmaking. And, and I'm assuming directing is your primary passion. But I'm wondering, uh, do you love all of those positions or, or are you uh, doing them out of necessity because of indie filmmaking to facilitate um, directing? Yeah, so um, I had to find, I worked in every position coming up in, in, in movies. I PA'd a ton. I was, you know, I was terrible at sound. I was terrible as an electrician in a grip. Uh, I figured out pretty quickly that editing was something I could bluff my way into. And then they, you were alone in a room and you could, you know, keep keep messing up until you, you could succeed enough to show somebody what you were doing. And I grew up um, with Super 8 film and then VHS, you know, old video cameras where you had to use two decks to edit. And so I always understood editing and loved editing. Um, and so that appealed to me. Um, but I grew up as an actor and, and I always loved working with actors and think that that's such a, um, a missed key for, for independent film and for genre film, you know, often I see films where so much emphasis has been put on the makeup effects and the blood and the, even the location, but the, the treating actors with respect and understanding their process is really, that's something I'm deeply passionate about and have always uh, been excited to bring to, to my weird little psychedelic horror movies. And, um, and so, yeah, that, that is the thing I'm most passionate about i think you're right out of necessity indie films have you wearing a lot of hats I, you know i have to be good at marketing and have thoughts about that i spend a lot of time not doing interviews like this which i love doing but you know people send questions and then you're writing essays so you have to call on that part of yourself you know at this stage of the filmmaking uh there's there's a lot of that sort of business of film stuff but um yeah, I, if if I had my druthers, I'd be on the set every day working with actors and, and having that uh, creative interchange. Uh, with the experience of, uh, of The Dead Ones coming out now, does it make you miss uh, uh, making uh, movies? I love making movies, and I'm so grateful that I had an opportunity. And, you know, I worked really hard for it. I, I don't come from money i wasn't like you know not i don't have a fat family that was like here come on in and join the family business i really fought for that career but i'm grateful it's a privilege and an honor to ever get to make anything creatively and i really regard that i um am 11 years older than when i wrapped the dead ones and i'm very proud of the film i think it's the first film i've ever made that uh when i watch it it's it's the film I really wanted it to be in every way. I don't feel like it compromised anything. And that's really satisfying. And if somebody called me tomorrow and said, we'd like to hire you to direct a movie, uh, I would most likely say yes. But um, 
I don't know, you know, I set out to make this movie with a very specific idea in mind, made reference to this when we were talking about Baltimore. I wanted to make something where it wasn't, um, where it would, like, honored my style of doing, like I said, psychedelic horror movies that are kind of mindfuck horror films. But I didn't want to be uh, oblique about what I was trying to say. I really wanted to be direct. You know, like The Wizard of Gore, I felt like it was really important at the time, pre- um, you know, the, the gore porno, poor, poor, whatever that whole movement was yeah. to be like, why are horror films so often about misogyny? And is, is it our responsibility to like own some part of that as an audience? And, and that just, I feel like it never was addressed. It never it got lost. And the movie was liked or hated or loved or, you know, annoyed people, but um, no one really, it wasn't a lot of, discussion about that the dead ones was really my attempt to um close the book on making a movie that did that successfully i um i still consider myself a filmmaker but i am employing my skills in in different ways i i I make uh films in my town promoting farmers and their farm stands and and for social media and and to kind of you know i made marketing movies marketing pieces for huge studio movies for years and so um i like bringing those skills to bear for something that deserves it and using my my powers for goodness i think that's great i like that yeah i'm not far from you i'm in massachusetts so i know we should we should post covid make a haunted house i yeah i'm totally i'm totally uh, into that i've been to uh I don't know. Have you been to any since you've been to New England? I was at uh, Haunted Overload in, in New Hampshire. Spooky World. Uh, in college, I went to Spooky World. And last year, I went again. And I still think it's one of the – it's spectacular. Um, yeah. I mean, it's one of the things about living in New England is that you have uh, no shortage of, of haunted houses to choose from come right. Halloween. Maybe not this year, but yeah, again, soon. Yeah. You've been to Salem since you've been there? Uh, not since I've been back, but I love Salem. I have yeah. friends who just set up their wacky antique store in Salem and uh, shifted from Los Angeles during the pandemic. So Salem is definitely a hot spot in, in the non-COVID way. Yeah. Salem's really weird because there, there's really cool shops like that and like old stuff. And then there's really like very touristy kind of, I don't see lame, but kind of silly, like, you know, very, you know, witchy stuff. Uh so it's really, there's such a contrast uh, and both of them are kind of cool in their own way, honestly, but uh, I, I tend to like the older, you know, more uh, real uh, stuff. I went on a walking tour there in Halloween and you, they talked about the actual, you know, people that were killed and everything. Uh, that was a great experience, but I would, I would suggest not maybe once, but it's really, for me, it's not the best to go during Halloween because it's just loaded yeah. with people that you not necessarily want to be around you know, kind of college yeah. people that are uh, just going there to be cool, and it's not it's not the greatest. Yeah, bridge and tunnel crowd, man. Right, right, yeah. So, uh, I want about shooting uh, action because I don't. There's a little more action in this movie, I think, than, than typically in in your films. Have you ever done a lot of that? You know. What's up? This is James D. Lamont from It Came From The Flyweight Productions inviting you to listen to Culture Shock every second Monday right here on WithoutYourHead.com. 
Uh, in uh, All Souls Day, Dia de los Muertos, there was uh, imposed action sequences where the movie was handed over to stunt people who were directing second unit. And there was a lot of flipping and running over cars. And it's not really my thing. Um, that sort of extreme... <laughs> Suddenly the movie stops and there's a bunch of flipping upside down. And I don't love that stuff. I don't love the zombie gets kiss, kicks in the face and flips around the head. <laughs> and, uh, I don't, it's not my thing. But in this movie, the action, I think, is, is driven... By a, uh, you know, in a different way. I really try to avoid having guns in my movies until this film too. Uh, but I think it's there's a there's a reason that you're going to tell the story with guns. I tried mostly to not have horror and guns mixed because I think what's horrific is not always you know there are other ways to do that. But um, yeah, no, I I don't have a ton of experience except for uh, yeah, except for for when I would get hired to do a movie and they would insist on certain stuff being very action oriented. And that wasn't always me who was doing that. Yeah. How about maggots? Have you had you uh, worked with maggots before? I have. Well, Jeffrey Combs eats maggots. And so that, so I did have experience with maggots. Um, It's nobody's favorite thing. Honestly, everyone, everyone, it, it really, shuts us set down people it, it for good reason it gives us all the creeps and so actors and crew members alike just you can feel everybody tense on a set with maggots my wife actually doubled emily's arm for the maggot oh, shots really? when we were dating and that's how i was like you really do love me you're gonna let me put maggots <laughs> on your arm that's a very romantic story jeffrey and she's yeah she's i mean you can imagine i met her Three months after we shut down, and so for the last 11 years is we started a family, and she's put up with an incredible amount of, I'm still not done, but I'm going to keep working <laughs> on it, and, and I'm so grateful for that. Yeah. I like that you said it's no one's favorite thing, because I would be worried if someone did say, yes, my favorite, I get to work with maggots. <laughs> probably, you know, I don't know about Chicken. this first. Chickens, it might be chicken's favorite thing I've learned since I've started homesteading. Chickens adore maggots, but they might be the only ones. Mm, interesting. <laughs> How about, so, um, you know, there was a, was there any festival run at all? Did, did it uh, get in like virtual festivals yeah. or any ones that ran before the pandemic? Yes. We did premiere at uh, Brussels uh, in uh, April of 2019. And that was an amazing festival to premiere. We premiered in, in Brussels. And, and, and so that festival, I really didn't know. The uh, audience tends to be very vocal. They're loud. They're screaming at the screen. They have like phrases with a full moon. They see a shot of a full moon. They howl. They stuff in, in you know, multiple languages that, are, that, that they are laughing at. And you don't know what it is. And I'd seen a couple movies, obviously, because I was there. Uh, and it was like, oh, fuck. This is, can I curse? Oh, yeah. Is yeah. it bad? Yeah, it's fine. Uh, yeah. I was like, oh, man, this is not going to go well. And the executive producer was with me, and he's European. And I just was like, how are we going to sit through the dead ones with this audience? This is going to be painful to hear them, like, cheering on, you know, that the subject matter. Yeah. Oh. Um, and the movie started... 
and they tried. Like we got about four or five minutes in with the shouting and the, and I was like gripping my seat and my heart's pounding and uh, and then they just were silent, silent, and like you could hear the gasps. And then at the end, people stood up and applauded. It was packed, and I was like, "Oh, it worked!" It I was thrilled. Uh, and then we played an, another hole in the head in San Francisco, which is a festival I had done uh, with All Souls Day. And uh, and then the pandemic really took hold. So um, yeah, we that that's we did one festival in Europe and one festival in the U.S. And now the movie's coming out. Well, it's good that you got to do a couple anyway. But like yeah, it was honestly you you. With a film like this getting reviewed at festivals and getting um, smart writers and reviewers to see your film and to, to contextualize it makes such a big difference for, for, for the distributors, for um, you know, the platforms. They're able to see the words of people who can help them to, to figure out how to market it. Um, and so not having that Felt like it was going to really be a problem, but I'm like I said, I'm grateful that that so far it hasn't been. We we got um, reviewed by Film School Rejects from uh, another hole in the head. I think that made a big difference because they placed it as their number one oh, for wow. 2019, and that that kind of put us in a position that that I think we otherwise wouldn't have been. I don't know if it's something you have the answer to, but um, how do you think virtual festivals will affect? that whole process of, of a movie uh, getting reviewed and, and getting the word out and someone picking it up. What do you guys think? Have you guys, are you guys going to virtual festivals? Are you attending stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, we, we've done, uh, we did some for, for Fantasia Fest and uh, honestly, almost at this time, it's almost too many to, to keep up with because there's so many that, that are going on. I, Hey, um, you know, I watch a lot of movies. I love movies. I watch a lot of movies at home. Mm-hmm. But uh, the experience of watching a movie in a theater with an audience, especially like Fantasia in a beautiful theater where a film may never, ever get to see that experience again, it's heartbreaking. It's, I mean, look, everything about COVID is heartbreaking. There's not really much to be said right. that isn't like this sucks. But another thing that sucks is that for audiences, for genre fans, and for filmmakers, this is a really complicated and tough time. And unfortunately, as you know, often happens in, in these times, the systems that were in place to, to withstand this, right? The, the stuff that Netflix finances and, and, and Amazon and Apple, those are going to be fine. They'll find a release and... They make enough of them that some of them are going to be successful and some of them won't. But I, I definitely, uh, you know, I feel, I feel for my fellow filmmakers and, and fans because it's, it's going to be harder right now for the cream to rise to the top, but I think it always will. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, if you think like, as I was saying, the thing I miss the most, they are going to festivals and, and the movie theater, but at the same time, like, uh, that compared to being healthy is like, I'd much rather stay healthy than, you know, be going to, to the movies, but it is something that I do miss, you know, as a, as a movie fan. I will make the, my message clear too. I really have no interest in dying so that I can <laughs> not to laugh at that. But yeah, yeah. Not really. I'm, I'm perfectly happy watching movies at home and living. <laughs> 
Right. No, I, yeah, I totally agree. And, but, but like we said, though, I mean, we watch stuff all the time on the computer or on your TV, but uh, for me, if you can watch really anything on the big screen with, with other people, especially I think horror and comedy uh, are the best to watch with, with a group of people. And I'm more of a horror guy than a comedy guy. So uh, that, that's the best experience. I think like a drama is cool, but you don't have, you don't have the same like experience, I think, cause you're not, yeah. you know, there's no really interaction. You're not going to sit there and, I don't know what you do. Cry together at the screen. I don't know. It'd be, it'd be it's a weird experience. Depends on the movie. All right. Yeah. If you've yeah. ever seen the Elephant Man with an audience, that's a movie that's like a super weeper, but you want to see it with an audience because there's a, you know, just as an example of an emotional movie that you might want to see with an audience. It's super emotional on your own, but in a theater, that movie is unbelievable. Very powerful. So all movies, everything, we should all be together <laughs> in spaces because human beings are meant to interact. Yeah. right now. That's, my go-to joke was always, you know, when I talk about horror festivals, like they don't make rom-com festivals, you know. But then I got an email earlier, it was probably real at the beginning of this year, that to promote the rom-com fest. And I was like, I can't use this joke anymore. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't know about going to the rom-com fest. Nothing against rom-coms if that's your thing but it's not your thing man there's yeah. somebody's thing right. so can i ask you guys did you guys get a screener of the movie yes okay good yeah yeah we were talking about it how else did you think we saw it i i i yeah that's a good point yeah all right well so what did you think of the movie what were were you okay with it did it enrage you or you did you hate it did you well, it's definitely a touchy subject to make a movie about obviously um but yeah, no, I thought it was uh, done well. And uh, to me, it was, as you said, it was more about showing why someone would, w- 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 why someone becomes a school shooter. And I also like the elements of, uh, I brought up about it being like a haunted place because of all of the horrific things that happen there. And uh, I, th- I find that interesting because uh, I would, I've been to not places of school shooting, but I've been to, you know, places that are considered haunted or there's like bad things that happen, old prison or whatever. And you do have a feeling like of uh, even if you don't know why, but it just feels uncomfortable, like that there is something there um, that's that's sticking there. It's a, it's a bad atmosphere. And so I found that interesting about the movie. Yeah. Uh, Tristan, I was wondering, you mentioned, oh, what? No, you go on. Sorry. Oh, it's, you mentioned you have um, children and I don't know how old they are, but I'm, I'm wondering if you've screened the film for them or, or talked to them about it. Uh, well, my oldest is eight, is turning eight. So no, I don't show them horror movies. I, we watch, you know, 40s musicals and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and appropriate films for their age. Uh, but they know that I make horror movies. They know the subject matter generally of the dead ones. Um, but we don't spend a lot of time focused on it. But, you know, I have strong political views uh, as I think most filmmakers or people who feel like they have stories to tell do, or, or I would like to think they do. And, uh, and they're very aware of, of those feelings and views. And, you know, like, you know, we have a farm. I have a gun. I have a gun because we have raised pigs. And when you kill a pig, it's the most humane way to kill a pig. Um, 
But I also have very, very strong feelings about guns and about the NRA and about uh, kids having access to guns. And, um, and so I really isn't answering your question at all. But I, uh, I'm very clear with them that, that it's not... It, it, the subject matter of the dead ones is, is of utmost importance. And as they get older, they'll certainly be more um, focused on that. You know, especially because we live someplace rural where, um, you know, that uh, young people's access to, to guns is, is, you know, I, I don't want them playing at other people's houses where their parents have firearms laying around. I think that's horrifying. Yeah. Did that answer your question? Kind of? Not really? Yes, I'm also anti-children and guns, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It did answer my question. It may, I, I was just, um, yeah, thank you for talking on that. Yeah, of course. So, oh, when is the official release for the movie? Uh, September 29th on VOD and Amazon and uh, Apple. I actually think a friend wrote me today and said he thinks it's available on Apple as of today. So they okay. may have released it a little early. So it's also playing in at the Senator... And Charles, they don't know when this airs, but um, for the week leading up to its release, it's available through their their uh, the Kino Lorber uh, uh, platform through the Charles Theater in Baltimore and the Senator Theater in Baltimore. So, so are are you? I know uh, you're a farmer now, but are you working on anything? My dream is to have a barn theater where I can have families see entertainment. That is right in front of their very eyes. I uh, I love movies, mm-hmm. but in working on a lot of um, studio fare and um, comic book movies and superhero movies and doing the marketing for those movies, for me personally, and this doesn't isn't necessarily everybody's experience. I grew up in the era of Star Wars, and um, you know, buying a magazine at the bookstore with pictures of you know a guy standing next to the Death Star that they were about to blow up. And to, it was so magical that there, everything existed in the physical world. And, um, you know, I read reviews of other people's movies and of mine when you fall back on using zeros and ones to accomplish things. It makes people, horror fans in particular, get really mad about that. And I understand, but um, we live in a very in a world where solutions are often digital. And I think we have lost... It's a magic, and um, I really feel as though reminding people that um, there is real magic in the world and bringing that back is um, is my next really big goal. If I have to fight for something for 11 years or more, I'm going to fight for that. Very good. I like that. Well, it was very cool to catch up with you. Great to see you. Great to meet you, and thank you guys for having me on. Yeah. We'll do it again sometime. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Did this go okay? Did, yeah, very is this, good. No, it's, it's this go? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, I thought it did. <laughs> I think, yeah, yeah. yeah. I right. hope you enjoyed sure. yourself. Always. It's, it's, uh, it's, yeah. I know that you love, I mean, we've, we've known each other for years, and I know you love movies. And to me, I love movies. So whenever you connect with people who have that in them, that's a great thing. I agree. Yeah. 
I also like movies. Yeah, I, I was going to add that. I was like, you know, uh, I met Trista on a set of mo- on a movie, and uh, and we have similar tastes and stuff. And it's always fun on the show, so it was cool to to uh, have her as the, as the new co-host here, the new friendly creep. I'm glad, I'm glad that you're on the show, Tristan. I'm glad you love me. I knew if you were on the show that you also love me. It'd <laughs> be weird. You. We're, we're going to get the take from someone who hates movies. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very good. Well, it's good to see you. Great to see you. Great to meet you, Trista. Thank you, guys. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, 11 years. I'm glad it's it's out there and people can see it. Long road. All right. Good night. All right. Take it easy, guys. Bye. Bye. Hi. Susan Lanier Bramlett here, the original Brenda from West Craven's The Original Hills Have Eyes. Yeah. But right now, I want to talk about boating. Um, this is a picture of my dad. Now, he was neither a loser or a sucker, as Trump has referred to our servicemen and women who sacrifice their lives daily to defend democracy. Like John McCain, my dad was caught, captured and tortured in World War II, fighting a vicious dictator who killed millions of people. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had it with this current administration, I would love to have a president who represents decency, someone who doesn't lie, someone who's not afraid to show his tax returns, someone who believes in science, not just padding their own pocketbook, and someone who wants to unite the people, not divide them. I hope you're registered to vote, and please consider supporting Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in this most important election of my lifetime, and probably yours too, Biden-Harris 2020. Thank you. From ancient terrors to the search for modern-day conspiracies, the tomb of Nick Cage is the new sound in horror rock. Uncover the mystery of old-world horror for the new world order on iTunes, Amazon, and more. Ripley, we should have listened. Sit here on the The tomb of Nick Cage. Find out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Tomb of Nick Cage. They're coming